Okay, assalamu alaikum, bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Welcome to day 12 of Surah Al-Baqarah. Amazing. Um, it's really pretty cool to think that we have spent almost two weeks now on Surah Baqarah, and I really still don't really want it to end. <laughs> it's been so amazing. Um, you know, a lot of times, like, um, when when we go back and edit this, and I go back and I, and I play back to watch what, what we've done, oftentimes I, I watch, like, what I say just to try and improve myself, and if I can stand it, because honestly, it's like watching yourself talk is so cringeworthy. Um, and then I realize, then you know, then I start thinking, oh, God, what is the purpose of me even, like, talking, you know? <laughs> it's like when the devil comes in and goes, like, okay, this is really embarrassing and whatever, but I hope that, um, I, what I'm trying to say is, I, I hope that what I try to add sometimes is just a little bit of, like, um, okay, someone who's just on the sidelines and trying to figure out like how this learning is actually changing life because I, I feel like it's so valuable um, I mean obviously the transformation in one's life um, from the Quran um, is is so important and so critical it's the whole point of this whole thing um, but you know we talk about like how you know look at how ethics should change your life in the here and now how does you know the Quran re relate to life here so I try to tell stories or think about stories of things that have changed I guess in my life since we have been doing these tough years and um, you know I was thinking today like um, a couple of things that that I did that were different than I that maybe I wouldn't have done a year ago and I just thought I would share these stories for whatever they're worth if they're you know interesting to someone or not um, I mean little things like even when I go shopping you know like when I go to the grocery store or I go to Costco or something like that I feel often so grateful that I can just kind of choose whatever I want and afford to buy it and then I start thinking about people who are living in places where they, you know, there's no grocery store. They, they don't even know if they'll eat, you know, for a while. And so there's a level of guilt that comes. Um, and so, you know, um, I try to do a little bit of something, even if it's like you're checking out and they always ask you, you know, do you want to donate $5 to the food bank here? Or if you're at CVS, do you want to donate something to cancer research? Or if you want to, you know, um, if you're buying something online, you know, it gives you an opportunity to, to give a few dollars here to, you know, people who are in need. And now I feel like it's just my moral duty every time I buy something, if I have that opportunity, that I should do that. It's like so minuscule, but even if, you know, if I do that, it makes a difference because, you know, like what sticks in my mind is, okay, you know, God wants you to spread your wealth and share, you know, in, in increase equality among other people. And so it's like, even if you can just do that little bit, at least you can tell God, okay, I've given something because I have so much and I just, I want to share. So that's one thing that if you don't do it already, it's such a minor change, but can make such a big difference for people who don't have anything. Um, another thing that, you know, I've learned certainly through like what we've been learning about here is just the small number of people that are interested in this sort of difficult path, right? The path of justice, the path of mercy and ethics. And, um, you know, so I, I've started to feel like a bit of kinship with, you know, other activists that I see online or people who are really putting them out there for social justice causes. And I often wonder, you know, we're often reaching out and trying to get people to respond and think about what we're, you know, educating about. And then I wonder, like, you know, some of these activists, I wonder what their success rate is. And um, one person that I follow on um, Instagram, his name is Sean King. Um, and he stands up a lot for um, issues that are, are causes that have to do with the African-American community. Um, and I've, you know, made a point to just kind of keep abreast of like what sorts of things are happening. Um, and I signed up for um, an email um, through one of his organizations, which is called uh, Grassroots Law Project. And so they are standing up for people who are incarcerated unfairly. And there's a huge issue. Um, there's, there's a man named Julius Jones 
who is in Oklahoma, um, and he is um, up to be um, put to the death penalty or put to death tomorrow night. And so there's just been um, so many emails that I've been receiving about, you know, please reach out, please help, try to do something. And the other day, you know, I was like trying to clear through my email because I get way too much email and too much junk and I've signed up and stuff. And so I just started, you know, like it, you sort of get this um, nice feeling of like, okay, delete, 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 just to clear some stuff that you don't care about. And I deleted his email about Julius Jones. And that email haunted me. Like for days, I would think, okay, no, you got to go back and, and do something. You got to go back and do it. So I went back into my trash bin several times and it was calling for people, you know, to make phone calls to um, people in Oklahoma. And the story, if people are not aware of Julius Jones, he's an African-American man. He was, um, he was accused of killing a white man, I think about 20 some odd years ago. Um, there was a lot of evidence um, that was faulty. I mean, it was it's like your classic story, right? So it's like just some, you know, black man, he gets pegged by, actually, he got identified as the person who committed the murder by the person who actually committed the murder. And he cut a deal with, um, you know, the police at the time. Um, so, you know, this criminal got, got to leave uh, prison after 15 years. And poor Julius Jones, who had an alibi and who clearly did not fit the description of the person other than being black, um, ended up incarcerated and um, has been literally in prison for over 20 years, has been in solitary confinement for 12 of those years, and is now um, set to be put to death. Um, and all of this evidence has come out in this time. Um, the, they came up before the parole board, and the parole board actually made a recommendation that his sentence be commuted from um, death to life in prison with the possibility of parole. Um, and the governor of Oklahoma decided to ignore that. And so he is still on schedule to be put to death tomorrow. So Sean King is reaching out to everyone to, you know, please make phone calls. And um, they had a very interesting thing that, you know, I, I tried out and I thought, okay, you know, this is the least that I could do. I mean, I could see a Muslim, you know, or any of us could be in this situation. And, you know, the least that I could do is make a phone call and, you know, be inconvenienced in my life. And so I tried a few times and I got cut off and whatever. And I'm like, no, I need to do it. Um, I was picking up my son and I, I said, okay, you know, this is the third time. I want to do it in front of him because I also wanted him to see the process. I want him to have that in his toolkit of like, okay, in the future, you should do this. So I put it on speaker, you dial, and it's a fascinating thing because it's like, I don't know if Muslims do this, but we should. You got Kim Kardashian, you, you click on the, the um, phone number and you get Kim Kardashian's voice to come and tell you the history of you know, Julius Jones and why it's you know, such um, a situation of extreme injustice. Um, and you know, here's what we would like you to do. We would like you, we would now after my message, we're gonna connect you to the governor's office and also the offices of several other people who are very influential um, with this Oklahoma governor. So, and please leave a message if you get a voicemail, you know, do the, leave a message about what you like, be polite, be kind, you know, if you speak to a person, you know, identify yourself and all this stuff. So it gives you the direction for what to do. So I did it. So the first one I like, you know, and it says, please stay on as, as you'd like. So you get on and, you know, the first person I got was like, this is a wrong number. It was someone who was really irritated. It was obviously someone who just didn't want to take these calls. And, um, and then when they hang up, you get a little automated, oh, you're doing great, nice job, stay on and you know, please go on to the next one. And you could literally stay on. And so then I would go on to the next one and I would get you know, sent, connected with 
um, like some random doctor's office who actually is a campaign um, fundraiser for the Oklahoma governor. And then from after that, I got you know connected to a barbecue rib place, and obviously the owner of that barbecue rib place is also a campaign fundraiser for the you know Oklahoma governor. And then on and on and on. And so you know, and Mita watched me do this, and I left maybe five or six messages before I was just like, okay, I, I think that I've you know I got to the point where it's like, okay, it got, got too complicated. And so I thought, all right, I hope that that was enough. Um, but you know, I I like wonder, you know, how many people do this, and do we have a Muslim equivalent? And, you know, this is something I would never have done, you know, like two years ago. I mean, maybe I would have, but if, but, you know, I just would have just deleted that email and said, okay, you know, that's not my cause. I chose my cause. My cause is, you know, Islam and education in this space. And I can't do everything, but, you know, I'm just going to focus on that. And then, you know, my narrative is, it's okay. That's someone else's problem. And now I feel like, no, I mean, if it comes across your desk and you can do it, you absolutely should do it. And, you know, so this, I guess, gets me to the sort of the last thing, which is, um, you know, again, like, it, you know, we learned in the last halakha, um, we, you know, the idea that justice and ethics has to be defended. And this was, you know, one of the clear learnings from the last, you know, meeting we had. And so it just really struck a chord with me. Yes, it has to be defended, and it's not um, something that should be, like, dissected. I mean, if you have a chance to, to give back and defend in any way you can, then you absolutely should. Um, so check it out, Julius Jones. If you can look him up, if you, wanna, if you follow me on Facebook, do what you can, because, you know, he's got a deadline of tomorrow. He's going to be put to death. Um, and then lastly, you know, I um, reconnected today with um, someone who actually... Um, took his shahada with us and over a year ago um, and he was you know just checking in and and just you know said hey how's it going um, and you know clearly had just felt like I he wanted to reconnect because he's trying to get reconnected to God and everything and so you know he was asking me about some of the professor's writings and stuff and so I said you know um, definitely you know check out our website and this and that and the other thing and then I said, you know, most importantly of all, just really focus on building your, your relationship with God. Um, and, you know, and he wrote me and he said, well, you know, I know the professor's talked about that and he, and he said that to me, you know, when I took my shahada, how do I do that? And again, ding, you know, last halakha. So, you know, if you want to love God, you got to do what God loves, right? And it's sort of connected back to all of these things. It's like, you know, this is the way you build a relationship, whether it's you give, you know, a dollar at your, to the food bank when you buy something, or you make a phone call for someone in need, um, or, you know, you just reach out and, and help someone. Um, all of these things, you know, you feel like, okay, you know, I want to be part of that 2% or that small minority that makes a difference. Um, and I need to push myself to, you know, help and I want God to love me. So, um, you know, then it doesn't really become a burden. It's actually something quite beautiful. So for whatever that's worth, I just wanted to share those stories. Okay, and I'm looking forward to an amazing session today. Um, inshallah, maybe we're, we're zeroing in on the last few days, so we're going to uh, love every last bit. Thank you. Assalamu alaikum. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Walhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Wa salatu wa salam ala Muhammad. Wa ala alihi wa ashabihi wa tawabu ihsanin ila yawm al-deen. اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحلل عقدة من لساني يفقه قولي يا رب العالمين. We stopped at 
257. But before we um, go on, uh, I want to go back to Ayat Kursi for a little bit. Um, because of just some of the comments I I got after the last halaqa. Uh, I gave a khutbah, I don't remember exactly when, but I gave a khutbah about Ayat Kursi some time ago. Um, and if you get the chance to listen to that khutbah, uh, I'm sure you, you, you would be able to find it on Usuli. It's probably, it's, it's uh, flagged in the title as, as about that course. But the, I, I want to go back to that, that point that I made about the Quranic style where it will address a current uh, contextual issue and whether it addresses it by um, by responding with general moral um, directions or by specific legislation uh, that responds to an actual uh, issue that society confronted. But then consistently, as I said, that the, the Quran will go back and whenever it talks about an issue like that, it, it as if it goes back and it reminds you of first principles. And an engaged reader would reflect upon why it does that and the way that the first principles inform the process of responding or um, reacting and addressing specific issues that come up or that came up in society at the time. And if you look at Ayat Kursi, which it, it, it introduces what the Quran says about La ikraha fiddin, there is no compulsion in religion. And we talked about the fact that this in itself was in response to actual um, events that Medinian society confronted. And the core of these events, as we said, was that there, there would be some incentive to, for people who had converted to Islam to want other members of their family to join them. Um, or, in, at least in some of these narratives, uh, family members that didn't, wanted to prevent their children from leaving with the religion that they chose. Anyway, but then this is tied into, right after La Ikraha Fiddin, 
it's tied into what the Quran says about At-Tahut and that the path of Allah is the path that is in contradistinction to At-Tahut and particularly that word. So first, let's go back to Ayat Kursi itself. That of course reminds you with something that the entire Madinian Quran repeatedly stresses time and time again that the oneness of Allah, the, the creed of Tawheed, that And, and note that, you know, this is mentioned right after the narrative about um, uh, Dawood and his slaying the, the Prophet Samuel and the, the Prophet Dawood, alayhum salam and the, um, the slaying of Jalut and so on. Okay, so in the biblical narrative, if you know, if as, as we talked about last time, God experiences, um, it is nearly an, a very amorph, amorphic tradition. God experiences regret, he picks a king and then gives instructions to the king, and then when the king doesn't follow the instructions to the letter, God regrets, as we've talked about, that God is interacting with human beings um, from, and, and again, this is sort of classic of narratives about God in, in that time period. Um, nearly all narratives about deities at the time that the Bible was written talk about God's as interacting with creation through human processes and human causalities and human emotions. Um, and they project onto deities these human sifat, these human attributes. So, Ayat al-Qursi comes right after that and as a corrective to this, it underscores again that Islam is very different. Now, of course, from a Muslim perspective, this is the original message from the time of the Prophet Ibrahim and, you know, onwards. Uh, the father of the prophets is... And that Allah doesn't doesn't interact in terms of these human limitations. Okay, now it is important to pause here because and and if we talked last time and something that uh, Grace brought up the beginning of this halakha, interestingly, that we that 
if you want to build a relationship with Allah in in how do I put this in much of the um, uh, biblical tradition the gates to God are regulated by those who know God and we are aware of this until at least the Reformation and until Judaism itself goes through its major recasting by Maimonides and and others um, you know 14th 15th century which is uh, it, there are the idea of the accessibility of the divine but even then the way that the gatekeepers interact with the divine is full of mystery and it is as if they have a privy relationship with the divine it is as if they have the ability to speak to God and to hear from God and to interact with God in nearly human terms. So how do you fall in love with God? How do you understand the divine will? How do you uh, uh, build the relationship with God? Well, if you go through the gatekeepers, the gatekeepers always talk about the mystery of that relationship. And the mystery of that relationship consists of things that are largely inaccessible to humanity at large. It is only accessible through the, the secret of that relationship. That the the sir the you know of course that comes into Islam later on in in many ways through Sufism but we're talking about the the time that the Quranic text has revealed itself okay but as we've mentioned last halakha that the in Islam that all the prophetic commentary, all the traditions about this part of Surah Al-Baqarah um, make the gates of God accessible to all through, it is as if you, you, you will, the only way you can build a relationship with God is to serve what God tells you to serve, what God tells you God loves to be served. And so much so that it is this sort of uh, allegory or that, it, you know, God is, if you want to visit God, then you visit an ill person. If you want to feed God, then you feed the needy. If you want to um, uh, uh, support God, if you, you know, figuratively speaking, then you come to the aid of uh, the the oppressed and, and so on. So God 
is accessed through God's creation, but it it takes it takes the power of access away from the gatekeepers, because by that logic, it, anyone can wake up and say, if you if you take this very literally, anyone can say, well, today I'm going to de dedicate myself to coming to as close to God as possible by, since God said that if you feed the needy, it's as if you fed me, then that I will feed as many needy as possible, and that will bring me closer to Allah. This is why in, in, in Ayat Kursi, look at the emphasis in Ayat Kursi itself. That it, the emphasis is on Shafa'ah. Men the ladi yashfa'indahu illa bi'izni. The emphasis is on this element of intercession, access, in other words. And this is, again, you know, it's easy to lose sight of how transformative historically that was because it basically comes and says well you know God has not relegated or delegated that power of intercession in any specific institution although of course Muslims there are a lot of traditions that of you know, we can have a whole discussion about how authentic they are. That said, well, you know, at least the Prophet ﷺ has the power of shifa. That it is the Prophet Muhammad and and you know, there are, again historical reasons for that. Whether they're consistent with the Quran or not, that's a very big topic. But even if they are consistent, there is a huge difference between saying that the Prophet himself ﷺ is the one that would have the power of shafa'ah, but even the key to that shafa'ah, to that intercession, is placed in your in, in the common hand. Why? Because how do you secure the shafa'ah, the intercession of the Prophet By saying So you you by the more you say Salawat Aslim Allah Rasul Karim, the more you are guaranteed the Shafa'a of the Prophet. Again, so it is not an institution. And this is no small matter because it it transformed the dynamics of society a society that has gotten accustomed to accepting the privileges the inherited privileges of the privileged there are certain families certain structures certain dynamics that carry on and have carried on these privileges for centuries 
And Islam comes in and basically reorganizes the entire ballgame. And, um, okay, so that's one thing. But then there's another point that is not in the tradition, but that I think is clearly supported by the text. Why do the, the ayat al-shafa, the ayat that come and tell you, keep in mind that intercession is not an automatic or guaranteed thing. It, it, it is not embedded in an institution or in a class or an elite or so on. You will often find that these ayat either precede or come after a discussion on law. And I think the import of this is rather clear. That law itself cannot be relied on as an automatic instrumentality of intercession. That if you think, and remember, the whole uh, thrust of Surah Al-Baqarah is that, if you, if you want to sum it up in a, in a word, it's the legalism. You know, the whole narrative about the Israelites and why they failed their covenant and so on, and then it comes and it talks about the law given to Muslims after warning them and, you know, sort of laying the foundation for an entire discourse. But if, and inshallah, I hope to, that we'll, as we go on, I'll, you know, I'll flag this, is that Ayat al-Shafa'ah often come in the context, or nearly every time, they come into the in the context of either before law or after law. And it's the natural inclination to say, well, the law discharges my obligation. So this issue, for instance, and, and we talked about this uh, um, from a different angle last halakha, but you'll find, for instance, in... Um, like some of the current issues that plague the Muslim community, issues related to um, uh, uh, emotional slash sexual abuse by people who are in uh, a charismatic uh, position. or uh, Often the question that you'll find innately we go to, intuitively we go to, will answer this question. Was this relationship that was entered into uh, legitimate by Islamic law standards? So, for instance, the question is, um, can marriages in Islam be secret or must they be public? As if the law 
as if if you give the technical answer and you say, well, you know, this school of thought and this school of thought and this school of thought said that the that a marriage doesn't have to be public and that a marriage can be kept entirely secret, as if that answers the entire moral question. But that's precisely when people start treating the law like it is an instrument of intercession. If I follow the law, then I've, 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 then I've made my relationship with God good. So, you know, uh, this, uh, this was actually a, a, a real-life issue that came up some couple, some while ago. Um, this is was a this was a um, a guy who um, anyway this couple uh, the man the husband had forced his wife to have sexual relations several times and she you know objected and said that that's rape. He said that according to Islamic law, that 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 if you call this rape, then you are not being a real Muslim. You're not being a, a good Muslim because there's no such thing in Islamic law. And of course, they they've gone to you know several imams, and and of course, as you would expect, the imams that they went to said no. In in Islam, there's no such thing as raping your wife. Uh, you know, it's the most that you can say is that it's not good manners to force your wife, but if you force her, it's not a sin, it's not haram, it's not, there's no offense committed. Eventually, the, the, the woman convinced the husband, um, I don't think he knew who I am, but I, she did. <laughs> so they, they, they convinced him to come talk to me. And it was, you know, again, it was really striking that all the husband wanted to know is whether I can point to a hadith or a Quranic verse that would say that doing this is a sin. And if I couldn't, the matter to him was done it's 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 foreclosed uh there's nothing further to say this is precisely what when the law becomes a form of intercession because it is the law that is given the power of absolution or indictment and and, and again, and the law is a product, as Surat al-Baqarah itself demonstrates, it's a product of a complex dynamic that generated that law. And it's a very contextual dynamic. Now, you can, of course, resort to various principles that, beyond the positive law, so, for instance, it is sufficient to say that, well, coercion is wrong. 
And if coercion is wrong, so this is wrong. But, and if it helps you, if you think of what does the Quran mean by uh, blaming the Israelites for making the letter of the law blind them to the substance of the covenant. It is precisely that. So, the Shafa'a in, in Ayat Kursi, so on, there's one level in which the whole point of how you access and relate and deal with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala And second, that um, that point about our relationship to uh, instrumentalities that leverage power, whether these instrumentalities are an institution like a church, or that instrumentality is a legal order, like a system of law that has its, you know, its sages and its interpreters and so on. Okay. Um, the other, the second thing I want to 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 focus and come back to is this issue of tahut, because and again I have a a khutbah that I gave about the concept of tahut. In, in the Quran, um, this is in two fifty seven. Um, the khutbah was given at the Islamic Center of Southern California, and they've taken down all my khutbahs. Um, so I don't know if, if does Usuri have these khutbahs? Or the, we, okay. But so what I want to flag though. which comes from the word Taha. And Taha means to extend or to go beyond the limits in such a fashion as to commit an infraction. So you, the Tuhuyan, um, is anything that extends beyond jawaz al-had, anything that extends beyond its proper limit, is a tuhiyan. A oppression, the word for oppression, or an oppressive way of life, or an oppressive society, or an oppressive anything, is the word tuhiyan. So, Notice that here there is a contrast that not just the Surah Al-Baqarah but repeatedly is drawn out in the Quran. Um, That those who believe, so, okay. 
that Allah, those who are with Allah, those who are awliyaillah, that those who have built a relationship with Allah, they are awliya, they have become allies to Allah, and Allah has become a wali to them. Allah has become their ally. Those are people, their their in the entire philosophy of this dynamic is to go is to exit from darkness to light. And we've talked about this last halakha. But how about those who do not build a relationship with Allah? Well, in Surah Al-Baqarah it says, أَوْلِيَاءُمُ الطَّهُودُ اُخْرُجُونَهُمْ مِنَ النُّورِ إِلَى الظُّلُمَاتِ That they have become wedded or their fate throws them in the arms of At-Tahut. And the very nature of that Tahut is that it it favors darkness. Now, this, and to be very blunt, this could be extremely meaningful talk or entirely vacuous and empty talk. And it depends on whether you listen carefully to what Surah Al-Baqarah is telling you about the nature of light as opposed to the nature of darkness. Because, again, remember that Surah Al-Baqarah for instance, anchors you in the idea of bir and tells you that what bir consists of. And as I'm sure you recall, that bir consists of all these things where your being is, you're honed onto the idea of service to others and being a consistent agent for good. And, and so on. That, all these things that we've talked about. Now, a systematic analysis of the way that the Quran uses the word Tahut, it is always juxtaposed to anything such as Bir or Ihsan, even the idea of relegating a relationship to, with Allah to Ishafiya, to a, an interceding agent. Whether that interceding agent is an institution like a church or a clergy or uh, whatnot, or a legal system, is Tawud because it alienates God 
because God becomes inaccessible. Because God becomes incomprehensible. If, if, if I told you, you want to find God, and you say, yes, I want to find God. I say, okay, well, do your prayers and do what God loves. God, God loves. And you say, well, what does God love? I say, well, you know, take care of, of anyone who is needy. Take care of anyone who is disempowered. Make your, translate your life into serving what God has told you to serve. That makes God present socially, culturally, in life. But if I tell you, well, God only exists if you follow the specific rules that I set out, that this institution or this madhab or whatever it is, or God only exists in the space of, consecrated space of this building, where you have to go you, and you have to accept the hierarchy of authority, or as in often as today, um, uh, you find in, this in so many Muslim societies. Uh, it is as if the relationship to God only goes through the religious institutions that are um, that are authorized and accepted by the state. So, if you want to access God, then you have to go through what the state says is the path to God. We, we find this not just in a lot of Muslim countries, but even a country like France now that is trying, that regulates how God is accessed in Islam in France very aggressively. What ends up happening is that God becomes absent. That is the heart of Tahut. Do you see? So then what clicks is, well, to absent God from society is not possible without a considerable amount of, you guessed it, coercion by an authority that leverages power to monopolize the space through which you access God. Although when it's pointed out, I think this becomes very obvious that the relationship between Shafa'a, Ikra, Tahut, darkness and light, all these key concepts that are packed in so tightly. Um, you know, once someone points them out to you, you say, oh, yeah, that's rather obvious. So, yeah, you know, that's why it talks about 
that it talks about Tahut, and I understand Tahut is a word for oppression and despotism and injustice, and so, okay, but I've often referred to Quranic Islam and imperial historical Islam. Um, imperial Islam resisted very much the the dangerous power the dangerous ideological in the same way like today you find all these government freakings out, freaking out about the word jihad including western governments well historically the, among the words that they really freaked out in the Quranic uh, terminology is the word tahut because none of the khulafa or the umara wanted to be described as a tahut and so there are some very fascinating you find it in akhbar al quda by waqia uh, fascinating um, reports about how a a, a, a misuse or what is the state considered to be a misuse of the word Tahut would lead to the flogging of this judge or this faqih or this scholar the state would actually punish and imprison scholars if they gave Tahut the type of interpretation that I just gave it here tonight and subhanAllah, certain things don't change. This interpretation, if I, if I was sitting in a Muslim country, if I was sitting in Egypt or Saudi Arabia or Emirat or whatever, I would be promptly arrested um, and disappeared. It, it still has that power for, because it is, and in fact, even when I gave that uh, khutbah in the Islamic Center of Southern California, there's um, uh, a fellow who went to the administration and complained about the khutbah because he said it was a khutbah in philosophy. Um, what, what I just said here tonight, does it sound like philosophy? I mean, if you think that's philosophy, then you really know nothing about philosophy. This is sort of child's play um, compared to real philosophy. This is just thought. So notice in um, 258, which goes back to the Prophet Ibrahim salam and this um, you know, of course, you you typically get the response or the the approach to two fifty eight is in um, in um, call it a traditional fashion that uh, the Prophet Ibrahim is is arguing with a king. Uh, or is engaging um, 
with a king and the, the issue of, of the proof of God's power and so on. But, uh, and, but there's a couple of things that y y you notice that right after it, the, this ayah, which comes right after Ayat al-Kursi and then Ayat al-Ikrah and then Ayat al-Tahut, which is um, 250, 256 and 257. So first, And أَتَاهُ اللَّهُ الْمُلْكِ So this is a king and with the comment by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that أَتَاهُ اللَّهُ الْمُلْكِ that Allah has made him a king but yet this person who who was given kingship or power is not in the right. He, he is making a patently absurd argument. And the absurdity of the, of the argument um, uh, is actually something that so many Quran, uh, Quranic commentary, uh, commentators have noticed uh, to, to say, well, you know, I give life and death by by either killing or not killing someone. Well, it's clearly a flawed logic. It doesn't apply because, uh, you know, that is neither giving a life nor death. The ability to exterminate or not exterminate. Anyway, but when the fact that this person was made king as the Quran comments that God had made this person into a king doesn't mean that this person by virtue of being given that privilege is in the right in fact he's clearly in interacting with the Prophet Ibrahim is clearly in the wrong so that's one thing because, and this is a point that um, a, a typical medieval argument that remarkably has survived in our, into our modern age, the flawed logical assumption that just because someone has been put in power by God, it means that that is an implicit approval by God of either of what they do or of the right to rule. If you rebel against this person and you remove that person from power, then the same would apply. God removed them from power because God acts through our agency. So, this, this abuses people of the notion that just because someone holds power, that they are in the right. Because clearly here, someone who not just holds power, 
But God comments on this by saying, I am the one who put him in power. But yet, he's clearly wrong. Second, the I don't think it is a coincidence that this narrative about the holder of power who says, Ana wa umid, I give life and death as an example of what is clearly wrong. If I would ask you, what is this an example of? And someone would say, this is an example of Tahut. Or, this is an example of Tughyan. You would see that it would fit perfectly. What, what is the Tughyan here? What is the oppression here? Is the oppression is a king that thinks that he is endowed with the right to give life and death. And when, Ibra, when the Prophet Ibrahim points to cosmic nature and says, there is a power bigger than you, and that power bigger than you is that, that decides which way the earth revolves and how you, you see the sun coming from which direction and so on is a negation of the power of that king to say, I have the right over life and death. We often focus on the Tawhidi point in this narrative, but ignore the remarkable critique of Tughyan in this very same narrative that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala right after talking about Tahut gives you an example of exactly the type of abuse of power that leverages access to divinity. Here's a king that basically explicitly is blocking access to God and uh, empties, as a result, empty space, empties divinity from whatever space they saw they, they hold power over. Go to 260. This is, of course, a famous story in the Islamic tradition that the Prophet Ibrahim um, tells God, let me see proof of um, how you can resurrect. And the famous story that uh, is that the uh, uh, Prophet Ibrahim salam is told to take um, a bird or, or, or you know, livestock um, and cut it up into pieces and put it uh, in different locations uh, and then God would bring it back to, to life and so on. Um, the reason I pause at this is that this narrative that I just said, the one where a, a bird or birds are cut up 
and place the different mountaintops and then God brings them back to life is what is the most famous and what is taught often to Muslim children. There are two two things about the Islamic tradition. There is people like Arazi who has a, a somewhat of a long discussion where he says that the language here doesn't indicate the cutting up of birds, but rather that um, that well, he, he he puts two possibilities. He says that one possibility is that there were that the the different dead birds were put in different locations, and they were all brought to life, back to life. Um, the second possibility is the most intriguing and one that is I've never heard it taught in any Muslim modern Muslim circles and that is to deny that these birds were dead at all but rather to argue that what took place is that Prophet Ibrahim trained the birds to come back to their original nest after having been placed in separate locations. And the fact that these birds had the fitrah to return to their nest was proof of the divine was proof of God's ability to do what God what God wills including resurrection it's a subtle point I mean it's a it's an interesting point that um, and this this view although it it appears in some in some of the you know like Razi narrates it and reports it from earlier Mufassirun or the earliest uh, Tafasir um, eventually doesn't seem to to have survived in the Islamic tradition because it's a it's a rather interesting point that it, that poses poses the question well you know how could without a, an intelligent maker how could these pigeons in uh, have the innate awareness of although being placed at far distances to come back to their nest to always find their original home and to be able and of course and then some of these traditions go on to say that from that was the beginning of the process of what used to be the fastest mail in the pre-modern world is of course the um, pigeon system you know you write little messages um, um, which it's a dissertation waiting to be written because it was a very well-developed 
mailing system that all relied on pigeons. Um, remarkable social implications. Anyway, the other thing is, notice the, the Prophet Ibrahim salam, and whether this is, there's some, especially in the Sufi tradition, that talk about whether this is all anecdotal in the sense that it, it is related by the Quran to not because the Prophet Ibrahim, because in the Sufi tradition especially, they had a problem with the idea that the Prophet Ibrahim would at one point say, you know, I'm searching for my God, and he sees the sun and says, well, this is my God, and then it goes away and says, well, I, you know, I don't like what goes away. And then another point says to God, I want to see you. And God says, well, you won't see me, but, you know, I'll reveal myself to the mountains and to the mountain and, and so on, that famous narrative. And another point says to God, well, you know, show me how you resurrect the dead and so on. And yet, this is also the prophet who has the miracle of being thrown in hellfire or thrown in fire and doesn't burn. And... In a lot of the Sufi tradition, especially, say only you know, one of these events, not that prophets need these events, but one of these events would be sufficient to create a solid believer for life. If you are thrown in fire and you don't burn, well, you know, that, that's your miracle for, for life. So how could it be that the father of prophets, the prophet who made the greatest impact on the ancient world would also be the prophet that would demand so much proof. And the, the typical answer that in, in so much of the Sufi literature is that all of this was not because of actual doubt, but that the, but these were all sort of like instructional episodes, like anecdotes that are designed to tell us that doubt is normal and natural and that there is nothing shameful about doubt. And that doubt is a dynamic. That So you get some of very beautiful, touching writings about how you experience or you could experience your own fatah, your own revelation of witnessing resurrection. Of course, not. The, not by by seeing the the dead come to life, but by learning to see the way that God brings life out of nothing. So at ta'amulat that you by reflecting upon your creation, that you nurse your doubt, 
And that's, I mean, it, whether you accept that or not, but the, the, the key is that these narratives, they do have an anecdotal quality to them in the Quran. And it is as it, and it, the, the, the import of them, if, if the Prophet Ibrahim himself is telling God things like, well, you know, I want to see you, or I want to see resurrection, or, you know, I, I want my heart to be comforted because the, you know, the challenges before me, uh, are, are so on and so forth. Um, then there is nothing unnatural about struggling with faith at different times in life. What matters is how these struggles are resolved and how you negotiate these struggles uh, so that ultimately you don't end up surrendering to Tughiyan or surrendering to Tahut. And among the meanings of Tahut, and this is especially in the Sufi tradition, in the Sufi tradition they tell you that the worst Tahut of all that the most deadly tahut is when when your ego dominates you so thoroughly that every impulse becomes your master that it is your impulses so you know you you experience um, and some of the examples that are given in, in the literature, like by Sharani, for instance, are, are very interesting because, um, you know, if um, he talks about the way people relate to the impulses of food, that if every time you have an impulse, a craving, what we call craving, it, your your nature is well. It, my craving has to be addressed, and you never. It never occurs to you. Who is the master? Your your craving or you? Then you've submitted to Tahut. and he then goes on to give so many different examples uh, from from fruit cravings to you know he. he talks about interestingly though um, he has a, a, a fascinating part about the difference between Im impulses of fake love and real love because he, he has a, a part where he like Ibn Hazm he, he sees a, a, a fake love is tahut real love um, could be a blessing or an affliction like you know could be like a virus that hit you um, you know that you need to be treated on um, and although he says that some of that is untreatable um, or a real blessing that elevates you anyway um, okay
261, again, I'm just going to flag it because this is one of the very famous uh, Quranic revelations that, again, underscores sacrifice that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells you that giving is like um, that seven ears and every year a hundred grains um, okay. and despite that Uh, well, I want to move on, but I just can't resist. Okay. So, look. So, those who realize this, that it's like an ear, each ear is a hundred grains. Now, and don't do so with ill will, meaning that they don't give with arrogance, they don't give with an attitude, they don't give with an expectation of return on this earth. Um, in the vast discourses on the Awqaf, what became the, uh, the, the Awqaf tradition in, in Islam, which is, you know, a, a truly a remarkable episode in, in human experience, the, these institutions of Al-Qaf. That those who, there's some really, that creating a waqf with the expectation of fame and prestige as the creator of works the in you know the the tendency to to give and then to expect people to look up to you as a charitable donor um there are these writings in the islamic tradition about the how that uh erases the barakah, the erases that you might get an ajr, but it will never bring you closer to Allah. And it go again, we go back to this dynamical that those who give, truly give for the sake of Allah, giving brings them closer to Allah so that they become among the muqarrabun. Those who are Allah is close to them, and they're close to Allah. So Allah opens the the um, um, or Allah allows the possibilities or the for love to grow between them. But those who give with the expectation of prestige and position and so on, although Allah might reward their giving, but Allah keeps them at bay. That the the baraka of a qurba or of closeness to Allah is not achieved. So, but notice here that those then who give لا خوف عليهم ولا هم يحزنون. Of course, 
at one level, they have nothing to fear and nothing to be sad about in the hereafter. But as it is so many commentators and theologians have pointed out, doesn't just apply to the hereafter. That if you give with the spirit of giving, that your relationship with Allah itself becomes secure, tranquil. So you you feel the tranquility that again is the tranquility of light instead of darkness, the tranquility of Iman instead of Tughiyan, that you become freed of the Taghut, the Taghut of the self and the Taghut of your sense of self-worth or your sense of self-appreciation depending on the perception of other human beings. And again, you know, I'm, it, it, this, there's so much about this. This is a whole... Um, but that among the, 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 the relationships of Tahut is that where something doesn't matter unless or your sense of whether something matters or not depends on what people think about what you've done. And that's a ta'ud, that's oppressive. That is among the liberations that Allah talks about when He says, La khawfun alayhim wa Okay. Then notice again 263 that ultimately the, 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 you pause at this and you think so the act of giving is because of the ethical value affirmed. It is not the actual giving itself. Because if for whatever reason your giving will always be accompanied by an attitude. So it's as if Allah is telling you, it's not Allah saying don't give, but Allah is telling you if you're giving it will always be accompanied by an attitude, by a, a, an attitude of superiority or a haughty attitude or a, an attitude of annoyance or an attitude or whatever. Then understand that upholding the ethical value, i.e. a kind word, is more worthwhile in God's eyes than giving was an attitude. قَوْلٌ مَعْرُوفٌ وَمَغْفِرَةٌ Again, we, we, don't, we don't pause enough because uh, let's see how Muhammad translates this. 263. Um,
a kind word, he says, a kind word and the veiling of another wants is better than a charitable deed. So, Qawlun Ma'ruf is words of kindness. So, words that do not hurt the dignity of another human being. Words that understand that in fact the the person you are giving to or the cause that you are giving to is the one that's doing you a favor rather than the other way around. Maghfira is, I mean, it's interesting, Muhammad Asa translates it as the veiling of another's want. Maghfira is partly not embarrassing the other, not exposing the, the need of, so concealing the fact that you've given so that others, so that you don't, embarrass the other but there is another aspect again and you find this in in some of the Sufi writings that maghfira is not just this but if you are if you if you have in your heart in sense of indignation about the fact that others need your wealth. So it's like, yes, you give, but you are annoyed by the fact that you need to give. And you wish that you were not put in a position. So it is this the sense of entitlement, the sense of indignation or annoyance or, um, you know, why are there so many needy? That's an attitude that is contra maghfira. So you are, it's like you are upset with Allah's um, fate. You are upset with the way Allah arranged things. Or at least unhappy, or at least irritated by it. And when the Quran comes and tells you, and Allah tells you that if you only understood that having the right ethical attitude is more important than the material that you give, it is like Allah saying, if you only knew, you would wish that you didn't have money, but that your heart was clear, but you were poor rather than not being poor, but have a heart that's not clear.
if you only understood, if you had the choice between the two, you would choose poverty and a clear heart over riches with an unclear heart. Because ethically, in terms of God's mizan, poverty with, an, with a virtuous soul is clearly superior to wealth with an unvirtuous soul. So in Hi'alum al-Din, Ghazali says that understanding if if that this ayah he he reflect he says that this ayah is the most powerful reminder in the Quran that if people truly understood when Allah says that qawlun ma'ruf wa maghfirah it's better that everyone with wealth would not be able to sleep they, they would all lose sleep because they would all think about what is in our hearts and Ghazali even goes beyond and says that the problem with wealth is that when it is truly rare that you'll find a wealthy person who if they scrutinize their inner self they will find that they are in fact not vindictive about having to give that most the vast majority of wealthy people when they give there is an element of irritation about having to give notice 262 263 264 um, the emphasis on the in the Quran about this point I mean it, it is remarkable I I've seen anyone that grew up in a in, in the Muslim world knows how the type of ostentatious displays that often go on with giving. And again, it is not because our revelation didn't warn us about exactly the ailments from which we suffer. Notice 2.64, Muhammad Asa translates it as such. Um, do not deprive your charitable deeds of all words by stressing your own benevolence and hurting the feelings of the needy, as does he who spends his wealth only to be seen and praised by men, believes not in God and the last day. The parable of this person is that of a smooth rock with a little earth upon it, and then a rainstorm smites it and leaves it hard and bare. Such as these shall have no gain whatever from all their good works, for God does not guide people who refuse to acknowledge the truth. So the image that I just want to underscore that Oh, this, this panel, it's not fatal. 
ذات مثلا كمثل صفوان عليه تراب فأصابه وابل فتركه صلدا تركه صلدا that the image here is of that of a hard rock now remember earlier that same the parable of a hard rock is used about the Israelites and that their hearts has become as if hard rocks and, and yet Allah says but keep in mind that still there is water can make its way so through some so there are porous hard rocks but here the parable takes us to a a rather drastic image that these are hard rocks and it is as if that urge to give whatever that the causes the urge it's as if that little soil that starts accumulating so that these can become from instead of hard locks can be get, become a, a basis for generating life for goodness to come out of it but yet when tested i.e when the rain falls the soil is wiped away and these rocks remain hard and dead so think of the morality you know we just again we we pass over words because we we've we've lost our relationship to to, to words but think of the morality here if you do not understand the virtue of giving or the ethical the, the the production of ethical values in the dynamic of giving and you co-opt what would normally be a beautiful act of giving you co-opted for ugly purposes, for tahuti purposes. So you co-opted by thinking of what, in what ways does this increase my prestige? In what ways does this give me deference? In what ways does this make people look up to me? In what ways does this make people mention my name more? So all these things, it is as if, literally, as if you've rained on the little soil that could have animated the rock with life. And you've wiped it away. And so then the act of giving will not produce or will not generate 
even the 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 first springs of love or a loving relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If you serve what God loves, love sprouts between you and Allah. But if you serve what Allah loves and you and here I'm, I'm, I'm purposely using the terms that Sufis use, Sufis use. You serve what Allah loves, but you discover that you are actually worshipping yourself. That you ultimately, everything you've done is that, so, to serve your name, to become more famous, to become more prestigious, to become more influential, to be, whatever it is. Um, then that will not sprout any type of intimacy between you and your Lord. You will only be more in love with yourself, which is a tahuti relationship by definition. Uh, so, you, but that's it. Subhanallah. So, فَتَرَكَهُ صَدَّقْ لَا يَقْدِرُونَ عَلَى شَيْءٍ مِمَّا كَسِبُ That, it's like, of no use. That it is, all this, everything you've done, you've served a Lord. Uh, again, the, the emphasis on morality and ethics in this is um and you you'll see where, where this um okay so this leads up to leads up to a very practical that again laying the moral foundation leads up to a very practical legislation but it's as if saying again, the law without its moral roots is pointless. So look at 267. So then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala comes and says, Ya ayyuhal ladheena amanu, anfiqu min tayyibati ma kasabtu, wa mimma akhrajna lakum min al-ard, wa la tayammamu al-khabitha minhu tunfiquna, wa lastum bi-akhazih, illa an tughmidu fih, wa alamu anna Allah ghaniyun hamid. This is 267. Muhammad Asad translates it as, okay, O believers, spend on others out of the good things which you may have acquired, out of that which we bring forth for you from the earth. 
and choose not for your spending the bad things which you yourselves would not accept without averting your eyes in disdain. And know that God is self-sufficient ever to be praised. Okay. So, there was an, a reason for a, this ayah addressed an actual problem that arose again in Medina. And that is, there were people in Medina, because there was so much emphasis on giving. So some of the merchants in Medina thought, well, you know, these Muslims, and there's so many people now starting to convert to Islam, and well, these Muslims, you there is no way to be in with them, to, to, to gain acceptability socially with them, unless you give. Everyone around us um, who are among the, you know, the, the companions of the Prophet is giving, and so, okay, then we have to give. So some of the merchants in Medina got the bright idea, well, you know what? Every time we receive merchants, merchandise coming from Yemen or coming from uh, Shem, Palestine and, and uh, Syria and so on, there's a certain amount of this merchandise that is flawed or defective. If it's fungible products like fruit or whatever, well, a certain amount that is madrub. Madrub means uh, it, it's not rotten, but uh, has some degree. You know, it's it's uh, it's um, too. Um, uh, what is the word? Bruised. 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 Right. So, like some amount of the some degree, some amount of the food that is bruised. Or if it is wool, you know, some that is infected by uh, um, um, worms or... So there's always a percentage loss. And these thought, well, that's great. Let's donate this percentage. And the Prophet, والسلام, When he found that out, interestingly, this is what the tradition says, that first, it is exposed by the Quran. That the Quran first addresses that and basically condemns. And then when when the Quran says this, upon investigation, it, it turns out to be exactly what these people are doing is that they are giving sort of what is not very marketable and not very sellable or whatever so the the prophet goes to them and says that the hadith i'm paraphrasing it but basically that 
ولكن يمحو السيء بالحسن والخبيث لا يمحوه الخبيث that's the and then there's not remembering the completion of the hadith but the Prophet goes and says well if that's what you're going to give then don't give now you pause here because if that's what you're going to give then don't give this is not a very pragmatic we are used to our modern life severe pragmatism right well you know give them something well at least they're eating from the garbage i mean look at how there there are muslim countries today where the poor eat from the trash can they eat from the garbage or restaurants whatever restaurants don't sell you know the they give to the uh street people um and we we the way we are conditioned in the modern age uh you know it's better than nothing you know yeah they're wearing hand-me-downs uh but it's better than not having clothes and if you say well this type of pragmatism is immoral people say what do you mean this pragmatism is immoral uh, this type of pragmatism is immoral you, you it's an alien concept because we the we are nurtured you mean we get pragmatism in our baby's milk uh, the way that we were raised but so but to say that notice that this society again time and again a demonstration that it puts ethical values ahead of anything human dignity ahead of anything why not give them what's deficient why not well because it's not becoming it's it's not dignified it it it's not good for the sense of dignity if i wish muslims would reflect and understand because it it would be transformative for the way we relate to our tradition and then what the prophet teaches in response to this is that Allah that if Allah never the 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 cure for something bad is never something bad in return so reciprocity the logic of reciprocity has a limit you can't cure evil with evil you can't cure what is bad with bad but what is bad must be addressed or cured with what is good so what is bad here what is bad is need poverty and the cure to that condition is what is beautiful 
as a matter of principle. والخبيث لا يمحو الخبيث الخبيث here is the fact that you think that this is good enough for these people. I've had um, in the days that where I could go to Egypt, I would often have, uh, you know, the government um, often goes to prime real estate in the heart of Cairo and kicks out people who um, inhabit this prime real estate, evicts them. Um, you know, th these are people who have been living there for a very long time and often they don't have contracts or anything because it, they, they've been there long before uh, there were paperwork. Um, I, I mean, they, they've, if the law of adverse possession was actually honored, although there, it is an Egyptian legislation, but the government just ignores it, uh, they would be considered owners and they would give, be given deeds of, of ownership. But the government completely ignores the law of adverse possession, over, although they've been living in the same area for 100, 200, 300 years. The government comes and says, I don't care, you're out. Okay, so the government evicts them and why? Because it sells this real estate to developers who are going to pay top dollars. Okay. So what do you, does the government do with these people? Well, the government often will build them uh, homes that are, let's put it, very, very, very modest. And not even modest. I mean, uh, um, uh, just bare minimum quality. And charge them rent. Anyway, the reason I'm bringing this up is that often when in, in conversations where I say, well, you know, the homes these people are, are given, it, it doesn't respect human dignity. These are homes that just, you know, uh, puts five members of a family in a single room. Uh, the, the the toilets, uh, bathrooms are disgusting. The the bathroom, the kitchens are, bit... and the response I always would hear from people in positions of authority, well, you don't understand. These people are not like us. If you give these people, um, like proper homes, they they, they can't understand that luxury, and. It is, considering what their expectations in life is, what they're getting is more than sufficient. And subhanAllah, and I've heard that even from shiyukh, even from some shiyukh at Azhar. The, the, the Mufti Ali Goma told me something very similar um, years ago. That you know, oh, the, the, this is just what these people understand, and you, you, you can't. Anyway, and I, I'm always just amazed because if you if you if you anchor yourself in the Sunnah of the Prophet, this is completely at odds with what the Prophet Muhammad taught.
this idea of, well, this is what is good enough for these people. Um, that's their class. That's what's good enough for them. Um, is and I and the, and this whole this and a, and a few other incidents in in the in the Sunnah and, and in the history of the Quran always would come to mind, but. Okay. Now, I told you that this long introduction about the ethics of giving sets up the foundation or the groundwork for a couple of specific responses to specific problems, right? So the first response is the one we talked about. The, the problem of people giving uh, not prime material, but hand-me-downs and subservient material or inferior material. And that, that Prophet ﷺ underscoring that the the way that you address what is not good as say it is with al husn or what is hasan not by you know saying well th this is enough yeah it's not great but it's adequate okay the second occurs in 272 Um, well, actually, ho uh, hold on. Well, okay. I'm going to go to 272 and then come back to 268 because of, of just the order of things. So, 272. Notice, لَيْسَ عَلَيْكَ هُدَاهُمْ وَلَكِنَ اللَّهَ يَهْدِي مَنْ يَشَاءُ وَمَا تُنْفِقُوا مِنْ خَيْرٍ فَلِأَنْفُسِكُمْ وَمَا تُنْفِقُونَ إِلَّا ابْتِغَاءَ وَجْهِ اللَّهِ وَمَا تُنْفِقُوا مِنْ خَيْرٍ يُوَفَّى إِلَيْكُمْ وَأَنْتُمْ لَا تُظْلَمُونَ So, why does 272 start out by saying their guidance is not up to you? But yet, whatever you spend, it is for your own good. And it is, again, underscoring it is the ethical point, the virtue point. Well, earlier on, I told you that in Surah Al-Baqarah, there occurred a problem in that there were a number of Muslims among the Muhajirun especially, but some of the Ansar as well, that um, used uh, that after the occurrence of a number of battles, and especially after the, uh, the Battle of Al-Khandaq, the Battle of the Trench, 
they said, well, you know, our family members that we used to send help to because they, they needed the help, they continue to aid our enemies and support our enemies. We're not going to help them anymore. We're not going to send our money to people who are not Muslims and continue to be to support the kuffar. Um, and I told you that the Quran addressed this already, but the problem was not resolved. Human psychology is, is, is interesting. And especially when you have enemies and you're saying yourself, why am I sending money to someone who continues to support my enemy? Um, this is a real, you know, I have family members that can you continue to support Sisi, I mean, a, a criminal by all measures and measurements and every, by every moral and ethical value, a murderer, a torturer, a criminal. And the impulse is to say, oh, you continue supporting a criminal who has killed and tortured people and continues to kill and torture people. Why should I send you money? Why should I help you? In fact, I want nothing to do with you. That's the normal human impulse. So, although the Quran had addressed this already, but there was a woman, um, a woman called Natila. Natila and her grandmother became destitute and were living cl close to Medina, but in an area that did not belong to Muslims. And they were not Muslim. So Natila and her grandmother heard that Muslims are generous people and maybe they'll help us out if we go to Medina. So they go to Medina and they hear that among the most generous people is Asma bint Abi Bakr, Abu Bakr's daughter. So they go to Asma and they say, we've heard that you help whoever is destitute, help us. Our conditions are set. And Asma, the support, when she finds out that they're not Muslim, she says, you know, we have Muslims to take care of, get lost, basically. I mean, she doesn't say get lost, but, you know, basically refuses to help them. Um, the other uh, situation that came up is that before Banu Nadir were um, evicted from Medina, so this is before the Battle of the Trench, uh, but after the revelation of the first, after the revelation of the first part of the of, of the Quranic instruction of Surah Al-Baqarah about it, that there were people from uh, the Ansar, the natives of Medina, who had family members who were in Banu Quraiza, so there were family members who were, were Jewish, and Banu Nadir, and tensions were building up 
between Muslims and Banu Quraiza and Banu Madir, because Muslims, there was, it's not, it wasn't one incident in which Muslims were betrayed, but there was a series of incidents in which Muslims, the consistent complaint was that the Jewish tribes were not honoring their covenant of Mithaq al Medina and were suspected of helping the enemies of Islam and helping the those uh, the natives in Medina who did not con or, or agitating among the natives of Medina who did not convert to Islam uh, including the hypocrites so the Ansar who used to send monthly allowances or allowances to their family members needy family members in Banu Quraiza and Banu Nadir uh, stopped sending these allowances and said you know you're you're not Muslim and you continue uh, doing these things that um, there is even a further tradition although I am very suspicious of this tradition that the Prophet ﷺ himself would when it came time to apportioning the sadaqah this is the, the, the sadaqah collected by the Prophet and dispersed to the needy in Medina. He would not include in the rosters of the needy those who were not Muslim. So he would limit the sadaqah to those who were Muslim. And that this ayah was revealed to address all these problems and basically mandate that the sadaqah would be shared with non-Muslims. So the Ansar who had relatives in Bani Nadir and Bani Quraiza, the Jewish tribes, to go back to spending their giving them allowances, the, the situation was Asma and other needy people, and also to include non-Muslims in the rosters of Sadaqah. All the, the reason I'm, said I'm skeptical about this is that I believe that, it's not that I'm skeptical that this happened, I'm skeptical that it happened only after the revelation of this ayah. I think it happened after the revelation of the first ayah about this matter. Um, that, yes, they were not included in the rosters, but they were included in the rosters after the revelation of the first ayah, which means a period of few months. Okay. So, now... You might, with your modern consciousness, you might think, well, okay, yeah, this is, uh, well, but hold on. Think of, in our modern society, how many countries would agree to sh give welfare to non-citizens? I can tell you, that most Muslim countries, Muslim countries, will not include in the welfare system people who are not citizens. In the United States, we do not allow undocumented aliens or people who are not permanent residents or, or, or citizens to be part of our welfare system. Uh, and it's a very hot topic 
the, the, you know, whether an undocumented alien who has a medical emergency as in, is treated um, by a hospital, uh, knowing that he will never, or this alien will never be able to pay the hospital bills, even if it's sent to them, it is a very hot political issue because there are a lot of people who want to end that and they say, well, why should we, you know, share our wealth? So, now, if this is a hot issue, citizen or no citizen in the modern age, um, I don't even want to tell you, like in Greece, I just finished reading a report about this. In Greece, it's not only that the state will not share welfare with non-citizens, but there's a big problem in Greece today because the Greek coast guards, when they catch um, migrants that have entered the country illegally, this is, believe it or not, they actually do this. It's called pushback. They take them, put them on boats, and throw them in the ocean without life rafts. So they literally throw them in the sea and say, here's the Turkish shore over there, swim over there. And 1,200 people died because they drowned after being thrown by the Greek Coast Guard in the ocean. So, now, this is a case before the European Court of Human Rights right now and so on. Um, so, it was absolutely radical in this, in this day and age for the idea that the Quran would come and say, you have to help those who are not Muslim, the needy who are not Muslim, was absolutely radical back then, and it's still radical today, because Muslims never lived up to this ideal. I mean, in, in, in the modern age, especially after colonialism, when the idea of citizenship became anchored and, you know, you're, you're the citizen of this country and so you belong to this country and so on. Um, but it underscores, it's like you have this build-up to the morality of wealth, the emphasis of the ethical values when it comes to wealth to deliver two very important responses to two very serious social issues that came up. Okay, now, then notice that between the first problem and the second problem, you have 268. الشيطان يعيدكم الفقر ويأمركم بالفحشاء الله يعدكم مغفرة منه وفضلا والله واسع عليم so the 
the intercession in two or the interlude between in 268 Satan threatens you with the prospect of poverty and bids you to be niggardly whereas God promises you God's forgiveness and bounty and God is infinite all-knowing granting wisdom unto whom God wills and whoever is granted wisdom has indeed been granted wealth abundant but none bears this in mind save those who are endowed with insight of course the, the second part um, so we the reason I posit this is that when Allah says Satan what Satan promises you is poverty. Now, in the Sufi tradition, they always, they take this to mean that this is the poverty of the soul and, and, and so on. But, but, when Allah says, Satan promises you poverty. I take this to actually, it's not just a poverty of the soul that if your attitude towards money is not based on moral virtue as taught by the Quran, your societies will be afflicted with poverty. The obvious point that there will be severe imbalance in your societies. There will be a minority of you that holds a great deal of wealth with a great many of you that live with very serious need. So it is like saying, unless you, you, you take these moral lessons about deconstructing materialism in your life, and understanding what your relationship to material things is, count on the fact that, like a disease, your societies will be infected by poverty. But then, that, that warning by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or acknowledgement by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that, that sadly so many societies will fail to understand that it is not about giving just you know giving the bare minimum uh, to, or like a welfare system, you know, a welfare check that you send to people. But it is about immor the morality of wealth and the morality to material things. And that's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, that this is wisdom. And wisdom is a truly 
a gift. And like everything in, in, in our relationship with Allah, you earn that gift. It's not that Allah just throws wisdom upon you as you happen to be walking in the street, you know, like, like uh, light striking you, uh, lightning striking you, but that you earn it. So it's like saying, take it seriously, because if you don't take it seriously, you're not going to learn it. The moral trajectory that this created is this whole infrastructure of Awqaf. And till now, I mean, there are few very good books about history of Awqaf in some aspects of the Islamic civilization or another. Um, but sadly, uh, a lot of the of the it's it's not, not not I mean it's a grossly understudied field, but the role of Awqaf that the the way that this Quranic normativity was translated institutionally into an entire system that would, you know, yes, you know, a lot of the awqaf would, would be named after the creator or the, the, the family name of the creator of the waqf. But many of, but if, if you notice, if you've lived or, or have any experience with awqaf, there wasn't a great interest in the Islamic tradition to preserve the names. It's like there wasn't a great interest to preserve the names that established the foundations. But a waqf became known by its purpose. So the awqaf that funded schools were known. The awqaf that funded uh, orphanages were known. The awqaf that... Uh, took care of stray animals, you know, were known as the uh, In my view, the really sad transformative moment in, in the history of Muslim societies is when the state took over the Oqaf and created a ministry. Because the most corrupt ministries in many Muslim countries are the ministries that manage the Awqaf. Uh, the minister of Awqaf uh, in Egypt recently made a bizarre proclamation. He proclaimed, speaking to the president of Egypt, and said, the money of the Awqaf are all under your command. Like, basically, you can as if this money belongs to the ministry. The, the, the money belongs to the waqf that created the, the thing. But the, the way modernity works is that, sadly, um, you know, the vast majority of this, these awqaf were, were diverted from the purposes for which they were created. So there isn't a single waqf in Egypt today, today for instance, that care, takes care of stray uh, uh, animals. While before the French occupation, 
there were a number of very famous awqaf that were dedicated. Interestingly, um, I, someone told me, but I, I haven't read scholarly words, someone told me that there are awqaf in Turkey today that take care of stray animals. Um, among the, the, the things that the Prophet said in the context of these ayat, um, I think that um, أحب إلى الله من عابد بخيل that um, a, a jahil in this context is, is but basically the, the, the gist of it is that a person who doesn't worship as much but is generous, is closer to Allah, or is more beloved to Allah than someone who does worship a lot, but is stingy. Um, and it is not, it, it all, again, it all goes back to the, like, like so much of Surah Al-Baqarah that deals with the values that should prevail in society. And so the, 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 the point of a narrative like this is the, the problem with the type of society that in which people think that they can come close to Allah by uh, acts of worship if it's not accompanied by a certain moral position towards material things, then acts of worship themselves could be a form of selfishness. You're basically saying, well, you know, it's all about my extra prayers, my dhikr, my... Um, uh, my own relationship with Allah it, as if this relationship uh, can be elevated regardless of what people around you experience or are going through. Okay. So then... Two seventy-three again addresses a, a a real problem that existed in Medina. So, Hamad um, Asad translates this as, And give unto such of the needy who, being holy, 
wrapped up in God's cause are unable to go about the earth in search of livelihood. God, uh, sorry, he who is unaware of their condition might think that they are wealthy because they abstain from begging. But though canst recognize them by their special mark, they do not beg of men with importunity. And whatever God, whatever good you may spend on them, verily God knows it all. So 273 was addressed um, the its specific group of people who according to various reports, numbered about 400 or so, eventually. And these were either migrants from Mecca or migrants to Medina from areas other than Mecca. But what was common to all of them is that they had converted they have migrated to Medina, and they were largely destitute. They um, had not not just had no wealth, but they they uh, not surprisingly in a society in a closed economy, as often the economies in these areas were. There weren't really much opportunity for them to and uh, and jobs or whatever jobs they could obtain in Medina were sporadic so they had no well no no wealth that they could use as capital and they had to rely on whatever um, odds and ends and you know uh, seasonal jobs that would come up and that would employ them but what there, and they, many of them were effectively homeless. So they they lived in the Prophet's mosque or close to the Prophet's mosque in common areas. And a, a major part of this group became known as Ahlul Sufa. And they would uh, focused on studying the Quran, um, often dedicated themselves to serving the Prophet and were the first to volunteer uh, whenever issues like warfare or missions or you know practical affairs came up. So they were not a standing army. But they were definitely at the forefront of volunteering. And remarkably, the dignity taught to them by Islam, and we often overlook these points, where did they learn that sense of dignity, that they shouldn't go around begging? Because they, 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 if you say 400 of them, that's a substantial number of people, and a substantial number of people that conducted themselves with such dignity that people would often forget that they had nothing. 
you can't pass over something like this. Because the that means that sense that 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 sense about who they are and what a Muslim is and how a Muslim ought to conduct himself, they learned from the Prophet or the way that the Prophet taught them what the Prophet taught them about the Quran. And but what was a persistent problem is that because they conducted themselves with such dignity, uh, people would often respond to those who asked them for things and forget Ahlul Sufa. And the Quranic treatment came explicitly saying that virtue is that you have to go beyond simply responding to need. You have to develop the level of empathy that you anticipate need. Can you can you imagine if this is something that we taught to our children as Muslims? Is that you know your your consciousness should be attentive I don't know I mean it is very odd um, uh, last Hanukkah Grace made a comment about um, but anyway someone made a stupid remark about when asked to um, donate to Osuri and it just so happened subhanAllah that I was reading about uh, the uh, there is a fellow called um, uh, Zakaria Botros he's a rather infamous character Zakaria Botros used to be a priest in the Coptic church um, for many years but in 2006 um, he quits his job in the Coptic Church and of course he doesn't have any problem getting immigration papers to the US um, and comes to the US and dedicates himself full-time now that he's not employed by the Coptic Church and he doesn't have to answer to the Coptic Church, he dedicates, he dedicates himself full-time to doing nothing but attacking and trashing Islam. So he knows more about Bukhari and Muslim and Tirmidhi and, uh, than the vast majority of Muslims because all he does is study uh, and, and uses these books of hadith to to um, and he is employed I forgot the name of the of the uh, family that funded him but in 2006 he's paid his salary by you know so he's actually you know he has it's a job he is he, funded full-time to do nothing but attack Islam. 
And the reason I, he came up is that it, recently it was uh, on WikiLeaks, a document was leaked on WikiLeaks about the wealth of uh, Zakaria Botros, this guy that uh, trashes Islam full time. And it turns out that he has 12 homes in Orange County and in the LA area that he rents out. And his income is about, um, comes out to about $90,000 a month. And I'm sitting wondering, all this money comes from, all his money comes from people who decided to donate their money and apparently donate so much money that they turn this person into a wealthy person because you know he doesn't do he doesn't sell anything and when it comes to Muslims you hear something as obnoxious as I'm not gonna pay for his salary it, it is mind-boggling is where where did we go wrong that you have plenty of wealthy people willing to fund not Zakaria Botros is but one person now imagine the army of Islamophobes that are funded everywhere uh, to put billions of dollars in funding people that do nothing but trash this religion and on the others and and all of these people don't don't you know there's they don't get any credit they don't get any prestige they don't get any reputation in fact most of them go out of their way to hide the fact that they are donating money to people like Zakaria Botrus I mean it, it comes out in WikiLeaks who uh, whose his finances are while Muslims, it is completely skewed. It, it, I don't. I honestly stopped understanding it. It just—is it a lack of faith, a lack of belief, a lack of interest, a lack? I, you know, I don't get it. I just don't get it. Because on the Muslim part, you have a preordinate interest in if i'm gonna fund something i want to make sure i'm recognized i you know people kiss up to me people consider me the great gift to islam and the great islam islamic authority it's it's truly bizarre and it's i don't know very strange okay so this is 273 and we say darban fil ard means that they are unable to obtain means of income it's like saying they are unable to obtain employment because you will you again you you often encounter in today's world um where um, some will say, well, why don't they go get jobs? Well, 
the if the Quran itself tells you that there are people who are in need, meaning that they are unable, unable to obtain employment, but their sense of dignity makes them unwilling to put out their hands and then puts their onus on you, the responsibility on you, to make sure that it's not make sure that they're fed. It's making sure that their need for a dignified living is met. Because it is not a matter of do they have enough or they starve to death, but a dignified living. Okay. And again, those who spend their money by night and day in the open and in secret that لا خوف عليهم ولا عليهم ولا هم يحزنون again that that same expression that they will have no reason to fear and no reason to be sad okay then the Quran moves to another actual social problem confronting so many in Medina that riba or usury had been a, a long established part of the economy of uh, so many parts of Arabia, but even beyond Arabia. And the, the essential way that riba was dealt with, the usually was dealt with, is that lending and you pay back the loan at often uh, an agreed upon increased rate. The, the rates could be, you know, you pay back in... Uh, double the amount in 30 days or you pay back uh, 250% uh, in six months or uh, things like that. And and there, especially as you're t in, in Medinian society, the, as we said, there's a, as Surah Al-Baqarah is being revealed, there's a consistent dynamic of um, a society under siege, a society engaged in warfare. Well, what thrived in this environment was that were the money lenders, and a good portion of the money lenders were from the Jewish tribes. There were money lenders. Uh, who did not convert to Islam, and there were money lenders among the Munafiqun who, at least nominally, conver converted to Islam, but their their main business was that as far as the war economy pushed more and people more and more people into need, is that they would go and borrow this money. Um, sometimes there would be. Uh, a, a form of pawning where they would put something uh, to, to guarantee the loan uh, what 
Islam forbade, or what the Prophet ﷺ forbade was putting a human being as a guarantor or the, as, as a surety for the loan, which was, was also a very common practice in the, in the Near East, including Arabia. That you needed the loan, so you say, well, I'm going to put my child, my daughter, my son as a surety so that my, my child lives in your home and serves in your home, cleans and cooks or whatever, uh, until I pay back the loan at a usurious rate. And the Prophet did not allow or forbade the placing of children as surety for loans, which is very interesting in, in, um, uh, in the development of discourses on, on slavery later on in Islamic law. But anyway, but people would put as surety, all types of things, uh, homes, um, kitchenware, gold, merchandise. Um, and the, if the unsecured loans, the interest or the rate of increase on unsecured loans would be much higher. So if the loan is unsecured, Often, you know, sometimes it, it was pay, the loan was to be paid back 500%, a 500% increase or, uh, or, or something like that. And the image that the Quran, it, because it is, not, it is not just that the Quran bans this practice, which kills off an entire economy in Medina. Um, but الَّذِينَ يَأْكُلُونَ الرِّبَا لَا يَقُومُونَ إِلَّا كَمَا يَقُومُ الَّذِي يَتَخَبَّطُهُ الشَّيْطَانُ مِنَ الْمَسِّ So the image that is portrayed of them is that it is as if they are possessed by demons. And you pause here because, so, they, in the Quran, the, the, in 275, they say, well, you know, what's wrong with usually where, this is just like doing business, where we're just, um, you know, some people sell merchandise. Well, we put our money um, to in service of others, and we basically we're we're making a profit off our money. It's just like trade. So there is an argumentativeness aimed to justify a certain practice. Now, the the ethics behind this practice is that you are exploiting people's need and you are saying I owe you nothing in light of your need except that I make a profit of you. Those who are going to come to money lenders, these money lenders are always people in need 
they're 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 not uh, you know normal merchants that um but it is so it is a, a business premise on the exploitation of need and then they're saying well what's wrong with taking advantage of people's need isn't this just like trade now and the quran comes and says they're as if possessed by demons you pause here because the image of people possessed by demons what is what is the demonic possession here the demonic possession is their their love or their commitment to financial investment regardless of moral consequences I don't care what your circumstances are I'm entitled to make a profit so much of what develops later on about the law of usury is extremely technical debates about whether there's an increase on money a return of something of for something of the same nature and so on but it ignored the 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 essential moral point and the essential moral point is taking advantage of people's need so yes usually is haram but it is even beyond that because what it's saying is that if if your attitude towards money is that I am entitled to a profit regardless of the consequences it's basically so much in the way that the market works now you know good old capitalists it's like I should make a profit and whether these are fair terms or whether this exploits your situation or whether you you so if I know that you need a medicine for instance okay and I sell you this medicine at and like the price of an EpiPen um, some of you might, might be aware of this you know EpiPens are the shot that you need if you uh, have allergies and you eat something that you're allergic to an EpiPen could save your life well the price of EpiPens in the US shot up why because the maker of EpiPens knew that people needed it and they had no other recourse and no alternative, so they jacked up the price. The ethics of Surah Al-Baqarah says that this is, although this doesn't involve technical usury, doesn't involve lending money in return for it, but it is equally, in my view, unethical. It is equally condemnable by God. It is what that description of it is as if you are possessed by demons equally applies to you. Similarly, you know, if you use someone's inexperience or lack of knowledge to make a killing, 
exploiting their need and their process. Although you might not run counter to a technical rule of law, but at the moral level, your ith, your sin with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is no less. Do, do you see how the, the whole issue of law and morality comes back? So, when Allah says, Allah allowed buying and selling, but Allah did not allow riba. Um, The, the balance of 275 is that when the legislation came, those who have made profits from usurious loans were not, they were not demanded to return these profits. So in other words, they were told, okay, what you've earned in the past, you get to keep. But from now on, this entire business sector and the 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 the, the all the, the people who had set shops to do these types of loans that was banned in 275 but the the moral point i think is no less significant than the actual banning of the usurious shops it is a, a horrific image because it is as if if the love of profit can become like a demonic possession. You are so preoccupied and obsessed with the idea of making money regardless of the morality of making this money. Uh, also, I should comment about 279. Let's see how Muhammad Asad translates it. Um, so this is Muhammad Asad's translation. You who have attained faith, remain conscious of God and give up all outstanding gains from usury if you are truly believers. For if you do not, then know that you are at war with God and his apostle. But if you repent, then you shall be entitled to, to the return of your principle, and you will do no wrong, and neither will you be wronged. If, however, the debtor is in strained circumstances, grant them a delay until a time of ease. And it would be for your own good, if you but knew it, to remit the debt entirely by way of charity. So, first, the expression... فَأَذَنُوا بِحَرْبٍ مِنَ اللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ Muhammad Asad translates it, then it is as if you are at war with God and God's apostle. But فَأَذَنُوا بِحَرْبٍ It's like saying then you are unnoticed that you are at war with God and the Prophet. Again, I take this to the basic moral point because look at the, the rest of the legislation. 
First, it says that, okay, no more riba. You are entitled to the return of your principal, and that's it. And if you know what's good for you, you would give people sufficient time to pay this principal back. So if if they are experiencing hardship that you wouldn't demand, and if you only knew what's truly good for you, you would forgive the debt altogether. So you would say, don't worry about it. So now go back to this notion of that then be on notice that you are at war. Parallel this with it is as if you are possessed by a demon. What you notice here is that what it's talking about is an attitude towards financial material things. So if your love of money makes you keen on profits regardless of the consequences upon others, it is as if you're demonically possessed. If your love of money makes you willing to defy God's law and say, I'm going to loan you, but you return this loan at an increased rate, then it is like saying you are in a cursed situation. That it is is like saying Allah or the divinity or what what is contra tahud or what is light will not bless you and cannot bless your endeavors. But then it 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 goes beyond and again revisits the issue about attitude towards material things. Not only should you not take advantage of the need of others, but if you only knew you would loan money, if you're going to loan it, you loan it to do good. And if you don't need this money right back, to earn the blessings of giving people time to pay it back if they need it. But if only you understood the proper attitude or proper morality towards money, that if you could afford it, you don't need this money back, you would just say, don't worry about it. Keep it. Because it is not about the money. It is about our the moral, the morality, the ethics, the virtue that must be upheld sometimes despite this money. Okay, we are very close to finishing Surah Al-Baqarah. So my expectation is Saturday, inshallah, uh, we'll finish Surah Al-Baqarah and then we'll have Q&A. Um,
for Surah Al-Baqarah. And inshallah, then after Saturday, we can um, go on to another Surah, inshallah. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Um, I can't believe we're like nearing the end. This is amazing. So alhamdulillah, I mean, I, I think what's so striking is just really the um, parallels between what we covered even just today and what's happening in our world. Um, just I mean, to kind of go from, from the back to the, what you just discussed back towards the front. I mean, when you're talking about um, taking advantage of people's need, I heard a report today um, on Democracy Now! about the profits. There's an, I guess there's an Oxfam report that just came out about the profits that are being made by Pfizer and BioNTech and Moderna um, over the vaccine. They're literally um, making over $1,000 every second or about $65,000 a minute. And, um, you know, talk about taking, and then plus of course there's, you know, new vaccines to come. Um, and just, you know, the crazy profits and then in light of you know, all the other things that are happening in the world and, um, you know, even like to think about like climate change. You know, these are the reports that you, you follow and you hear about, um, you know, people getting ready to lose their homes and not being able to eat and all of that. It's, it's incredible. Um, but what's so beautiful about like today and, you know, putting so much of this together, the idea of just um, building relationship with God as we talked about from the beginning and, and creating this access to um, to God for all people um, and the idea of um, how that really just turned everything upside down for that time and place and the, the you know idea of the relationship and the intercession and even using law as an instrument of intercession um, and denying people access to God um, it's such a, a you know, beautiful um, concept, and especially when it you draw it out to the idea of just re removing the presence of God in society or limiting God to certain spaces, um, shutting out the possibility for um, people developing, you know, a, a love relationship with God and how God becomes absent in spaces. Um, it, it's just like this overall notion when you tie everything together is, is just this loving God that just wants to allow you to build this relationship and even, you know, despite yourself um, and um, creating the context for that. Um, the, the, then the idea of, you know, obviously the king by definition does not mean that there's some implicit um, agreement or support or, or that the king can be right, you know, a king can be wrong. Um, and that God works through our agency. And that's, it's so powerful, especially for what's happening in the Middle East and the idea of not, you know, standing up to just, or to unjust rulers, but that um, obviously, you know, we as, as individuals are the instruments for change and for defending justice and, and ethics. Um, the, um, it was beautiful, the narratives of, of uh, Prophet Ibrahim and the message that, you know, this is okay and normal to struggle at times in your life over faith, but <clears throat> what's important is um, what you do about that. And the tagut of the evil, which brings me back to that really powerful um, khutbah that you gave about the tyranny of the nervous system and how, um, you know, you have to be able to stand up even to your own ego. Um, and the whole beauty of the, the ethic of giving and that it just needs to be pure and not for um, some return on your ego or 
that you should check if, if you're feeling irritated um, because there's you know some expectation of you um, and not to give what is um, inferior which is so um, typical of human pragmatism um, and the whole notion of just uplifting the poor and trusting that you know when you give you're you're doing something for yourself um you know I, i'm reminded of again like in our world you know again with covid i remember um all of the debates that went back and forth about whether the government should step in and help people in need and like something that will always re remain in my memory is someone interviewing um nancy pelosi who was a speaker of the house as she's sitting in front of her you know, two super wide um, refrigerators, pulling out her drawers of really high-end ice cream and, you know, being interviewed about whether or not the government should step in and give people help. And the whole premise that, no, we shouldn't give people more because they're gonna get lazy or people shouldn't be allowed to be on, you know, unemployment or something like that. And just, you know, um, the things that happen that in, in our world that just reflect these exact ethics. Um, and the importance of just uh, worship without service, being selfish. That it's not just about um, increased ritual. Um, and you've talked about that so many times before. And that someone who worships less but is very generous is closer to God than someone who worships a lot and is stingy. Um, and then the importance of developing not just um, empathy, or sorry, not just uh, answering someone who's needy, but developing an empathy and anticipating the need um, of someone in need and recognizing their dignity. Um, there's so much, but these were just things that, that stood out. And alhamdulillah, thank you so much. I'm, I'm excited to reach the end and have you tie everything together because even like when you are telling us about, you know, these verses and they're tying back to things like Bir and things that we learned, you know, days and days ago, um, there's just, you see how how much richness there is in Surah Baqarah. I can't, you know, I don't know how you're going to tie it all together, but it's going to be amazing. So I can't wait. Thank you so much for um, being with us. I'm looking forward to um, hopefully, I guess, seeing this uh, come to its conclusion on Saturday. If you have questions, um, definitely, you know, collect them, send them our way. Um, we have to figure out how to do it because it's, you know, going to be 13 days worth of Surah Baqarah. So I imagine there are going to be a lot of really amazing questions. So thank you for being with us and have a wonderful rest of the week and we'll see you inshallah on Saturday. Assalamu alaikum.